Right. Put your hand up, please. If <laughs> I can always rely on our Sema to... Put your hand up, please, if you remember the 1970s. Oh, a, bit, a few hands sneaking up. Say. Now, I, I was born in 1981, so I don't remember it. Anya, do you remember the 70s? <laughs> you were just a babe in arms, weren't you? Say. So. 1970s, the decade that tastes forgot. That's what they call it, isn't it? So you've got the swinging 60s and all the great kind of cultural stuff that went on in the 60s. And then the 70s gave us kipper ties and flares and kind of glam rock and all that kind of stuff. The decade that taste forgot, as people tell me. Do any of you remember seeing a Christmas tree in the 1970s? So what was it like, Roger, the Christmas tree? That, that's, that's exactly right. So that's, quite, that's artificial, but at least it looks real, doesn't it, more or less? Don't look too closely. Christmas trees, I, I, you see these videos of bands in the 1970s and or, you know, musicians, Christmas TV shows, Morecambe and Wise, they always have this Christmas tree absolutely decorated in this kind of gaudy decorations, completely covered in silvery stuff, massive great big stars, tinsel, draped and all this kind of gaudy stuff. Uh, hideous, garish. You can hardly see it's a tree underneath. It's just completely festoon of all this stuff, decorated. But if you were to go there and you were to look at that tree and pick underneath all that stuff, you probably would find underneath it something which which resembles a tree, if not a real tree. I think those kind of icons should be consigned to the dustbin of history. They have no place in a civilised society. A bit harsh. Well, we can debate that afterwards over tea. But the Christmas story, I think, is a bit like that Christmas tree, that 1970s tree with, with the Bay City Rollers prancing around, miming to music. Because Steve remembers it well. The Christmas story has been so festooned with myths and stories and legends over the centuries that sometimes it can be very difficult to see the green tree of the true story underneath it. And we need to be careful of this because sometimes that can seem harmless. Oh, harmless, harmless myths and legends which are added to the Christmas story, which are all part of the colour and the excitement of Christmas. But the problem is you can add so many of these stories to it that in the end it becomes fanciful and unbiblical and just ridiculous. And uh, I'm afraid even some very good men, some of our hymn writers who are, who are godly men, have fallen into this trap of adding unbiblical traditions to the Christmas story. And if you repeat it enough times, people start to believe it as though that, were, that was actually, well, of course it was snowy at Christmas, the first Christmas. Of course, you know, where does this come from? good example of this is what we're reading about today. So Phil asked me to preach on the Magi, the wise men that visited Jesus. And what would be the first thing that came into your head when you pictured the Magi, the wise men, any answers? Kings, crowns, kings. Okay. Sorry. Camels, yeah, that's another one. Magicians, what else? Gifts. Well, three kings. Yeah, exactly right. That carol. That's not carol, that song. We three kings of Orient are. Bearing gifts, we traverse afar. Field and fountain, moor and mountain. I didn't know there were moors in the Middle East. Did you? The Yorkshire moors transported to Persia. We three kings, were there three of them? Were they kings? Orient is just an old-fashioned way of saying the east, isn't it? It doesn't mean latent Orient, it means, means the east, okay? That, that is true, that is part of the story, the east. They came from the east. But all these traditions are added on. We have to strip it back right to the bare bones to get the historical, biblical story, the facts that we actually know to be true. And my job today is to do, is, to do, is to do a kind of demolition job on that story, a hatchet job, to chop it to pieces and get back, strip back all the, the gaudy 70s decorations and medieval stories and myths and get right back to the green tree of the biblical story because that's what we can learn from, that's what we can benefit from. 
But you might be like me. When, when Phil gave me this to preach on, I, my first thought was, why on earth do I need to preach on this? What on earth can be said about this that can be helpful for us as we look into a new year together as God's people? We've all heard it so many times, haven't we? We're all so familiar with the story. Is there anything that we can learn as Christian people from this story? Well, I think there is. And by God's grace, I'm going to do my best to bring it to you this morning. So we have this this mental image, don't we, of the, of the, the wise men, three of them on their camels, crossing the snowy desert on the way to a snowy stable in Bethlehem, following a massive great big star, carrying these gifts. History has even given us names for these three, these three kings. So what was it? Melchior, Caspar, and Balthazar, whatever his name was. If you want to, you can even go to the great cathedral in Cologne. I don't know if anyone's been there. And you can see the supposed skulls of the three kings in Cologne Cathedral. Why wouldn't you want to do that in the new year? Go to Cologne and see the skulls of the three kings. All this is just kind of unbiblical nonsense. I want to answer a few questions this morning. Who were the Magi, these wise men? What did they do? What happened to them? And then we'll answer two questions along the way. Why is this in the Bible? What is the significance of this? Why does the Bible mention this? Why does Matthew mention this in his gospel? And what can we learn from it? Why should we care about this? First question. Who were they? Who were these men? So these men are only mentioned in Matthew's gospel. If you read Luke's account of the birth of Jesus, he focuses on the shepherds and other aspects of the birth. But Matthew mentions the Magi. The Magi, the, the word Magi comes from a Greek word. This is also where, the, no surprises for guessing, this is where we get the word magic from, a magician. And this word has been traditionally translated as wise men in English. Where does it say in this account that these men were kings? It doesn't, does it? Now, people have surmised they were kings. They were certainly, obviously, wealthy men, but there's no proof that they actually were kings in the sense that we understand it. Where does Matthew say there were three of them? But he doesn't, does he? We don't know. There were three gifts, but it doesn't necessarily mean there were three of these men, three visitors. There could have been a great number of them. What do we learn from them in this passage? Well, let's look at verse, chapter 2, verse 1. After Jesus was born in Bethlehem in Judea, during the time of King Herod, Magi from the east came to Jerusalem. So we know they came from the Orient, they came from the east. People believe they probably came from Persia or Babylon. But they may have come from much further afield. They may have come from China. They may have come from India. They were, were trade routes. They could travel easily from these places. And it's quite plausible they came from all these places, any of these places, but most likely they came from Babylon or Persia. What do we notice about these men? Verse 2, we saw his star in the east. That implies that these men were men who studied the night sky. They studied the heavens. They went out and they looked at the stars, the constellations, and they they observed them and they studied them. But in case you get in your mind, they were like astronomers, like Patrick Moore with his telescope and his great big observatory. I think they were more than just astronomers who observed the, the shapes of the constellations and so forth. They, they were probably more like astrologers, men who looked for signs in the stars. They were perhaps diviners. There was, a, was an element of mysticism in what they were doing. In those days, wise men, the magi, were a kind of priestly class of men who had a wide variety of interests. They were what we call polymaths. They were men who were a bit like Renaissance men, like Leonardo da Vinci. They had a huge amount of different interests and different fingers in different pies. They said they mixed scientific study of the stars with astrology and magic and divination and science and art. And they were kind of experts in all these different fields and they mingled them all together. They mingled together the scientific 
and the supernatural together. So they, they were certainly observing the planets and the stars, but they were also looking, prob- most probably, as far as we know, for signs in the stars and you know, reading into them certain messages. Remember Daniel in the court of the kings of Persia, how Daniel, there was this great big entourage of all these magicians and enchanters and sorcerers who were in the court of the king and gave him advice and who were supposed to interpret dreams. When the king had a weird dream, he would go to these interpreters and ask them to give him some kind of interpretation of the meaning of the dream. And in a sense, those men in the courts that Daniel was working in, they were were magi of their time, wise men, mystics, men who had supernatural knowledge as well as scientific knowledge. And at the time of Jesus, apparently in the East, they were quite a powerful body, an influential body of men, kind of almost like a tribe of um, mystics and scientists and scholars and polymaths. In Daniel chapter 5, the king calls Daniel chief of the magicians. That word means chief of the magi. So the idea of the magi was nothing new. So that's who the magi were. That's who the wise men were in this story, as far as we know. They came from the east. They were scholars. They were students of the stars. They were astrologers. Let me just remind us that astrology and divination is strictly forbidden in the Bible. The book of Leviticus, God very, very strictly condemns those who practice divination, looking at the stars for messages or using any other means. And we should completely avoid that as Christians. Horoscopes, that kind of thing, is completely forbidden and does not honor God. Question number two, what did these men do? What happened to these men? So let's go through the story together. So after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, a group of magi turn up in Jerusalem asking this question, where is he that has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. When I read this, a few questions came to my mind. What did they understand by the king of the Jews? Because that's what they called him. What did they understand by that term? How did they know this this star they'd seen was the star of the king of the Jews? And why on earth did these men make such a long journey to worship him? Why didn't they just stay at home? Why did they travel hundreds of miles possibly to visit this king of the Jews? It's quite possible and quite likely that the Magi were familiar with the writings of the prophet Daniel. And they knew from the book of Daniel that there was to be a messianic figure, a messiah coming to Israel at some point in the future. And it's also possible that the Magi had come into contact, or previous generations of Magi had come into contact with the Jews in captivity in Babylon. So they had some kind of exposure to the Jewish scriptures. And they knew the many, many prophecies in the Old Testament about the coming of a king to Israel. Friends, there there had been lots of kings of Israel over the centuries, hadn't there? Most of them had been bad. But it's clear the Magi were not just expecting another king, another king in that long line of kings dating back to the time of David and Solomon. When they came looking for this king in Jerusalem, they were looking for someone special, a momentous and unique figure, not just another normal king who who sat in Jerusalem and ruled and then died and then his son would take over. I wanted to read to you a prophecy from the Old Testament in Numbers 24. And let's, let's absorb these words together. This is a prophecy which points to the coming of the Messiah. And I think this is just such a verse, just such a prophecy that the Magi might have had in mind as they came to Israel, to Judea, to seek the king of the Jews. Numbers 24 Verses 15 to 19. And this is an oracle. This is a saying of one Balaam, son of Beor. And this is what he prophesied, inspired, led by the Holy Spirit. The prophecy of Balaam, son of Beor. The prophecy of one whose eyes see clearly. The prophecy of one who hears the words of God. 
who has knowledge from the Most High, who sees a vision from the Almighty, who falls prostrate, and whose eyes are opened. Get this. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. He will crush the foreheads of Moab, the skulls of the people of Sheph. Edom will be conquered. Seir, his enemy, will be conquered. But Israel will grow strong. A ruler will come out of Jacob and destroy the survivors of the city. Particularly focusing on verse 17. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star will come out of Jacob. A scepter will rise out of Israel. Scepter symbolizing strength, might, and divine authority. So you can see there's a prophecy that a future ruler, an all-conquering king, will one day come out of Israel, out of Jacob. And he's compared to a star. He's compared to a scepter. Of course, the star here is metaphorical. What, what Balaam is saying is that this ruler will be like a star, with the majesty and splendor of a star. But it's quite possible that the magi, the wise men, knew this prophecy. And they were looking for a literal, a physical star, which would symbolize the birth of this ruler. Verses 17, 18, and 19 are quite gruesome by our standards, talking about people's skulls being crushed and foreheads being crushed. This is a picture of this ruler destroying his enemies, the enemies of Israel, the enemies of the people of God, and Israel growing strong. Given this, that a ruler would come who would be all-conquering, all-powerful, would crush the enemies of Israel, whose coming would be like a star, It's not surprising that foreign powers and leaders and rulers and influential men would come and seek to make peace with this ruler, even though he may still be a child in his mother's arms, to come and make terms of peace with him before he grew old enough to rule and to crush his enemies. So, I think with, with their minds full of these kinds of prophecies about the coming Messiah, the, the, the wise men travel to come and make peace and bow the knee to this future ruler who would destroy all his opponents and bring peace to his people. Come back to the story. So they see this star, a bright star, shining in the east. What was the star? Some people have speculated that it was a, a, you know, some kind of um, combination of the planets Jupiter and Saturn together, shining brightly in the sky. Some have said it could be some kind of comet or meteor. Perhaps it was, I wonder if perhaps it was the supernatural Shekinah glory of God. God's physical glory manifested in a physical way, a tangible way. And if the star had appeared when the baby was born, it could well have been the, the glory of the angels we read about in Luke's gospel. The glory of the Lord shone around. They were terrified. Perhaps they saw it from a distance. The glory of the Lord. We read about the transfiguration, didn't we, recently? When the Lord is seen in his glory, this kind of bright light, glorious to behold. But whatever the star was, the Lord God bent nature and bent the cosmos and he controlled it and wielded it to announce the birth of his son, our saviour. I want you to notice something. So let's strip away one of, the, one of the myths in the story. What do the major I say? We've seen his star in the east and have come to worship him. Does it say anywhere that the major I followed the star all the way from the east to Jerusalem? I'll let you think about that for a minute. I'll turn my page. It doesn't, does it? So perhaps we can assume that it did because later they followed the star to Bethlehem, but it doesn't actually say specifically that they followed the star all the way from wherever they were, Babylon, Persia, India. They saw the star when they were in the east. It's quite possible they saw this star. They they realized this was a sign of the coming Messiah, the king of the Jews. They went to the most natural place where you'd expect to find the king of the Jews to be 
which of course was the capital city, Jerusalem, the seat of the temple, Mount Zion. If a new prince had been born in this country, you wouldn't go to Crawley, would you, to look for him? Or Haywards Heath. You'd go to the seat of power. You'd go to London, to the palaces and fine places. So a group of these major, we don't know how many there were. There could have been a great number. And some, some have suggested they came into Jerusalem all riding in with their, with their, well, whatever they had, camels, horses. They came in in a great big crowd through the city gates. And we don't know, we're just speculating, but there could have been a load of them with pomp and ceremony and servants entering the city and causing a great stir. And it's, it's evident they went around asking people, where is he who's, be, who's been born to be king of the Jews? And I think they, they probably expected the whole city to be full of excitement and joy when they arrived. They said, where is he? Where is he? We've been traveling. Where is this king of the Jews? Expecting any person from from you know, the temple guards to a drunk on the street to be able to tell them exactly where the king of the Jews was to be found. Oh yeah, we know who we're talking about. He's, he's born, he's in the palace. He's been born. Go there straight away. I can take you right there to the door. But actually the reaction they got was very different, wasn't it? Look at verse 3. So we've got King Herod, this odious character, um, comes on the scene. Herod, we need to, be, to remind ourselves, he was a non-Jew. He was, he was an Edomite. He'd been on the throne for many years. He, was, he had been appointed by the Romans in 40 BC to be the ruler of the Jews. So he, he owed his position and his power to the Romans, the occupying force. Just a bit, a bit more information about Herod in case you wanted to know. Herod was, was a murderous, ruthless tyrant. He murdered his wife, his three sons, his mother-in-law, his brother-in-law, his uncle, and many other people. He was also, to, to his credit, he was a great builder. He'd, he'd built the temple and he'd built many wonderful buildings in Jerusalem, but he was a murderous tyrant. Deeply insecure. You don't need, don't need to be a professional psychologist to kind of work that out. He was deeply insecure in his position. And it says in verse 3, when King Herod heard this, when he heard they were looking for the king of the Jews, he was disturbed. And all Jerusalem with him. I wondered, why, why should Jerusalem, or presumably that means all the great and the good, if, if nobody else in Jerusalem, why should Jerusalem be disturbed by the coming of the king of the Jews? Like we can understand why Herod was disturbed, but why the people? I can only suggest perhaps the people were so used to Herod, they knew that when Herod was um, angry about something or disturbed about something, it usually meant a bloodbath and chaos and destruction and death. They were worried about his reaction. I want you to notice a few things about Herod and his reaction to this news that the king of the Jews has been born. The first thing is that he believed the Magi, didn't he? I think that's quite interesting. Herod, Herod didn't say, oh, you, you must be making it up. There's no such thing. He, he actually did, he, he took them at their word. He believed that there was a king of the Jews born. And that, that's actually a terrifying thing, that some people can know the truth. It's not that they deny the truth. They know it to be true, but they hate the truth so much, they suppress it by their wickedness. And Herod was just like that. He knew it was true, but he wasn't prepared to accept it. Also, I want us to notice this. When Herod heard about them looking for the king of the Jews, he understood full well that this term meant the Christ. How do I know this? Look at verse 4. When he had called together all the people's chief priests and teachers of the law, he asked them where the Christ was to be born. So Herod knew very well this, this baby wasn't just to be another king in a long line of kings. He wasn't to be a rival to his throne. But Herod knew full well when they asked for the king of the Jews what that term meant. It was a loaded term. The king of the Jews is a, is a, a euphemism, a synonym for the Christ, the Messiah. The king of all kings. 
whenever that term is used in the gospel, the king of the Jews, it's only used a few times. It, it is a term rich in potency, rich in meaning. Remember Pilate, when Jesus, Jesus was on trial before him, he said, are you the king of the Jews? Pilate used that term. He was very clear. That was what Jesus claimed about himself. That's what people understood Jesus to mean about himself. Remember the soldiers mocking Jesus before his trial, beating him, spitting in his face. They said to him, hail king of the Jews. They, they pretended to mock him. They, they didn't pretend to mock him. They mocked him. They, they pretended to worship him. They bowed down in mock homage to him. And they struck him with a stick. They called him the king of the Jews in a kind of ironic, mocking way. How different from the wise men who knelt in reverence. We have people kneeling in mockery. One day, those wretches will kneel before him in absolute terror. And then, of course, there was that, that charge put up on the cross above Jesus, which said, this is the king of the Jews. And, of course, the chief priest said, don't, don't put that, don't say this is the king of the Jews, say that he claimed to be the king of the Jews. And Pilate said, what I've written, I've written. How little did they know that was absolutely true? This is the king of the Jews. Not, a king, not the kind of king they were expecting, but God's anointed Messiah. Coming back to the story. Remember last week we, we looked at the words of the angels when they appeared to the shepherds. They said this, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. I wanted to ask us the question this morning. If this is great news, news of great joy for all the people, why on earth was King Herod and all Jerusalem so disturbed by this news? Why did they not receive it as great news? Why were their hearts not rejoicing to hear this news? In this story, we get a foretaste of the, of the kind of course of the Lord Jesus' life on earth, how he would divide people, how he, how he would cause opposition, how he would be the cause of the falling and rising of many in Israel, how he would be a divisive figure, even though he preached good news and the kingdom of God and did good and healed the sick, he would divide many people. As I said, cause the falling of some and the rising of others. How some would worship him and some would seek to crucify him. How some would, would follow him and some would utterly reject him to the point of crucifying him. And I want to put it to you this morning that Jesus still has, causes exactly the same reactions today amongst people. Some receive him, some worship him with great joy. Others completely disturbed by him. Others would quite happily kill Jesus if they could. Just expunge him, get rid of him. Because he's, he's an awkward presence in their lives. They don't want to even contemplate following and serving. We see that right from the beginning, from the birth of Christ, this division amongst men. Those who should have received him rejected him. So the Magi go to Jerusalem, presumably while they're having a rest and being you know, given some, some food and drink and they're resting. Herod goes to consult the religious leaders of the people, the chief priests and scribes, teachers of the law. And he asked them, where is the Christ to be born? He's asking them to, to draw upon their knowledge of the old, script, the old Testament, the Scriptures, the Torah, and the Law and the Prophets to ascertain what these words say about the Christ and where he is to be born. And these men have enough understanding to quote what we see in verses 6. Well, let's read verse 5. In Bethlehem in Judea, they replied, for this is what is written by the, this is what the prophet has written, but you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. But out of you will come a ruler who will be the, the shepherd of my people Israel. If you go to the book of Micah and read it, you can read this, following on from this verse. Out of you will come for me one who will be ruler over Israel, whose origins are from old, from ancient times. 
He will stand and strengthen his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they will live securely, for then his greatness will reach to the ends of the earth, and he will be our peace. And of course, this, when it talks about his origins being from old, from ancient times, it's talking about his biblical lineage, going back to the time of King David, being of the house and line of David. But also it points to Christ's divinity. His origins are, are from old, from ancient times, from eternity. And he will stand and shepherd his flock. His greatness will reach to the ends of the earth. He will not just be a king of Israel, king of the Jews, but his, his greatness will be universal and his kingdom will be everlasting. Now, I like this line at the end. He will be our peace. Remember what, what it says in Ephesians. He himself is our peace. See how the word of God all fits together. So these, these men of God, well, these men of God, these, these high priests and, and scribes, they understood rightly from Scripture that Scripture foretold that this Bethlehem in Judea would be the place where the Messiah, the King of the Jews, would be born. The royal town of David, once in royal David city. And although this town was insignificant, unimportant, and seemed to be uh, you know, a, a quiet country place six miles from Jerusalem, yet in this town... This town was to be uniquely honoured in that the birth of God's saviour would take place in its streets. I want you to grasp what the, what the high priests are saying. So they're saying that, you know, all these centuries we've waited for this prophecy, 700 years for this prophecy to come true. For a saviour, king of the Jews, to, to come. And guess what? He's here already six miles down the road in Bethlehem. He's been born. And he's there. He's come. A child had been born. A son had been given. And he was there just down the road for anyone to go and see. We see, don't we, in these verses, the unique mixture of humility and glory that was to be ever-present in the life of Jesus. So in one sense, he had the humility of being born in this insignificant town. It was, you know, it was insignificant because it was just a small, backwards place. And yet, for those who had the wisdom to see it, there was the glory, the significance of this being the, the town of King David, where great David's greatest son would, would be born into this world. We see that all through the life of Jesus. He does, does humble things like riding on a donkey into Jerusalem, which may seem like a very humble thing, and yet it's loaded with significance. What does King Herod do? Well, Herod had the arrogance to think that somehow he could nip this situation in the bud. I want you to stop for a minute and think how absolutely preposterous, ridiculous, arrogant, rebellious... Herod was in thinking that he could, he could thwart God's purposes, that God had promised his son would come into the world and Herod somehow thought he could stop this and prevent this from happening. Dear friends, this is, this is the epitome of foolishness, to try to take God on, to try to stop what God has decreed from happening. If you try to take God on, there will always only be one winner and it won't be you. God always achieves his purposes. And it's very important that we as Christians make sure that we're on the right side of his purposes. But Herod wanted to, to deal with this problem as he saw it and kill this child. Look at verse 8. So Herod calls the Magi to him. He finds out exactly when the star has appeared. And he says, go and make a careful search for the child. As soon as you find him, report to me so that I too may go and worship him. Of course, Herod had no intention of worshipping the child. He wanted to kill him. But before we move on in the story, I want to, this is, this is my application for today or some of it. And I want, want us to listen to this because I think this is very important. I want us to remember the different reactions of the people in Jerusalem to the news that their, their Messiah, the King of the Jews, had been born and was just a few miles down the road. First of all, you've got King Herod, who's, who's absolutely disturbed and wants to kill this child. 
Then you've got the chief priests and the scribes who who know their scriptures. They know that the the child is to be born in Bethlehem. They know the star is there. They've seen the magi. They've heard heard them saying the king has been born. Where is he? They they seem to have no desire whatsoever, actually themselves, going to, to Bethlehem to worship this child, to seek him out, to bow the knee to him. They've got no desire, no interest in that. They're completely indifferent. The only thing I can think of, the only reason I can think of for this is that they were, they were um, unbelieving. They simply didn't believe that the Messiah had come. And of course you've got the Magi, these pagan Gentile sinners who come desperately seeking this child in order to worship him. And these men would not be satisfied until they'd done so. They were willing to travel you know, a thousand miles more in order to find this child and worship him. That was their quest. That was their greatest desire. They would not be satisfied. They would not rest until they'd seen this child and worship this king. It's worth asking the question, all of us, isn't it? Which kind of, which kind of, which kind of people are we most like? Are we more like Herod, like the chief priests, or like the Magi? Are we one of those people that, hopefully not as we're mostly Christians here, but are we one of those people that, hate the thought of Jesus. Hate, hate the thought that one day he will be seen as king, visibly manifested in his glory, and that all will bow before him and confess him. Does that thought make us uncomfortable? Does the idea of submitting to Jesus, bowing the knee to him, worshipping him, make us feel um, indignant? You know, who is he to, to reign over me? And do we therefore resist him and oppose him? Uh, very sadly, there are, there are millions of people that do this. They have no regard for Jesus. They actually hate the thought of worshipping him. Just like Herod. Or are we like those people that are, that are more like the chief priests and scribes who, who knew all the prophecies, maybe knew, uh, well, they, they definitely knew where the Christ was to be born. They knew the facts, but actually are totally indifferent and unwilling to go and seek him. There are people like that who sit in churches, unconverted people, who hear the facts, they know the truth, and yet will still not go and seek the Lord Jesus, still not bow the knee to him, still not worship him. Or are we like those magi, those wise men, who will not be content until we worship the Lord Jesus? Of course, I pray that all of us will be like those, those wise men. Let me say this as well. The Magi, the wise men, had to travel down certain roads to get to see the baby Jesus or the child Jesus. They had to go to a physical location to Bethlehem to see him. There was only one, one road to Bethlehem, the, the A, whatever it was, across the desert. And that was the way you went if you wanted to get to, to, to Bethlehem. Or, you know, the, the, the B road from Jerusalem that went down to, to Bethlehem. There was only one way to get there. If we want to worship Jesus, we don't need to go to a physical place to worship him. He's not here present in a body in this world. He's in heaven at the right hand of God. But if we want to worship Jesus in spirit and in truth, we still have to come to him in a certain way. There's only one way to get to Jesus to worship him, and that is through believing the gospel, putting our trust in him as Lord and Savior, believing in his finished work on the cross, submitting to him, repenting, turning from our sin and turning to him. That's the only way we can come and worship the Lord Jesus. And also submitting to his lordship over our lives as well. I want to encourage today, if there's anybody here who is not yet a Christian, but you feel in your heart stirring to seek the Lord Jesus, I want you to continue, I want to encourage you to persevere until you found him. Those wise men saw that star. They knew that a king had come. They knew they had to seek him. Sometimes when the gospel is preached, the word of God is spoken. A non-believer will hear it and they will feel themselves stirred. They say, I, I believe this is true. I must find the Lord Jesus. I must put my faith in him. I must know that my sins are forgiven. Let me say this. You will not be happy. You will not get any rest until you find the Lord Jesus, if that's you. If God started a work in you, if God is calling you. 
And I've met people like this, and I know people like this even now, that God appears to be doing a work in who are wrestling with some of these things. So these people are, you know, they, they begin by finding out more, coming to a church, talking to Christians, hearing the word of God, reading the Bible perhaps, taking the first steps in prayer, seeking the Lord, wanting to know what this is about. What do these Christians believe? And of course, when I, I had this myself when I became a Christian, when I was becoming a Christian, there's twists and turns, and there are doubts, and there are discouragements. There are things that you don't understand. There's spiritual opposition and human opposition. There's the indifference of other people and the opposition of your family. You think you've gone off your head. All these things are common to the experience of somebody that's seeking the Lord Jesus, that's, that's been drawn by God to worship his son. It reminds me of, the, of the, the magi, the wise men, journeying to find the Lord. They had the, the setbacks. The, you know, they went to Jerusalem and they found that nobody was interested. They still persevered on their journey. And if the Lord Jesus is calling you, I urge you not to be content until you found him, until you know that you found him, that you know that you belong to him. The person that the Lord is drawing says this, you know, let others do what they want. Let them believe what they want. Let them say what they want. I'm going to follow the Lord and I'm not going to rest until I find him. When I find him like the wise men, I'm going to rejoice and worship him. Jeremiah 29 says this in a different context, but it's true. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. If you, if you search for the Lord Jesus, when you find him, your reward will be great. Your rejoicing will be great. So keep on persevering until you find him and don't get any rest. Don't allow yourself any rest and don't turn to the left or to the right until you put your trust in him. Let, let me say this as well. If you do that, we, the people of God, will rejoice with you and worship together, kneeling before him with you on that day when you find the Lord Jesus and say, my sins are forgiven, I'm a child of God, I know that he is, he is, I'm his and he is mine. Back to the text, verse 9. So the Magi have this um, interview with the king and then they set off on the final stage of their journey. It says in verse 10, verse, um, verse 9, the star they had seen in the east went ahead of them until it stopped over the place where the child was. So the star reappears in the sky. I don't know how that worked or what it looked like, but there was some visible manifestation of the glory of God which led them. And I think at that time they probably knew the way to Bethlehem, but this star was almost like a triumphal um, flag waving ahead of them as it led them into, into Bethlehem to where the king of the Jews lay in his mother's arms. It's a bit like, you know, sometimes you see a marathon and the final stage of the marathon, the winner, the, the, you know, the leader is heading for the finish line and some guy with a flag comes and runs ahead of him or there's a car with people cheering out the window that goes alongside all the way to the finishing line. I think this is what this is like. The star is waving them on to the finish line in kind of triumphant, triumphal entry. Don't ask me how, how the star appeared over the, over the place where the child was. I haven't a clue, but I believe it because the word of God says it. Somehow they knew this was the place. You can imagine their excitement as they entered or they came near the house. This is where the child is. This is where the king of the Jews is. Notice it doesn't say anything about him being, born in, him being still in a stable, in a manger. It says he was in a house. So we have to assume this was sometime after the birth of the Lord Jesus. Probably they stayed in Bethlehem for a few months because the child was too young to travel. And then we've got this beautiful scene, haven't we? In verse 11, on coming to the house, they saw the child with his mother Mary and they bowed down and worshipped him. Then they opened their treasure, treasures and presented him with gifts of gold and incense and myrrh. We've got this beautiful picture of these magi, these wise men, bowing down, worshipping this child. Here they are, grown men, Gentiles, not even Jewish people, learned men, respectable men, but also sinners who dabbled in the dark arts and mysticism. Here they are, bowing down and paying homage to the king of the Jews. 
Someone said this is a bit like a coronation. The only coronation that Jesus ever had, this private, beautiful scene where these men bowed down and gave glory to the king. There he was, God incarnate, the son of God. The one who would lead justice to victory in, whom the, in whose name the nations would put their hope. The shepherd who would one day lay, lay down his life for his sheep. Here he is in his mother's arms being worshipped by these magi. They open up their treasures, they present him with his gifts. A lot of people have read into the significance of these gifts. Gold, you know, symbolising royalty, incense, symbolising divinity. I don't know whether this was intentional, whether it was just coincidental. They're certainly regal gifts fit for a king. But what is the real significance here? Well, I think the significance is this, that it was very common in those days and still is for rulers to bring gifts to a greater king when paying homage to him. Remember the Old Testament, the Queen of Sheba, the Queen of the South, came to Solomon and brought all those lavish gifts to him as a token of her allegiance and loyalty and submission. And before we finish today, I want to read you a few verses from the Old Testament which talk about the the Messiah, the King of the Jews, being brought lavish gifts by the nations in a way of tribute to him. Look at Isaiah 60. Isaiah 60, verses 3 to 6. I want you to, as you you read this, to make the connections between this and the Magi and what they were doing. It says this, Nations will come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look about you. All assemble and come to you. Your sons come from afar, and your daughters are carried on the arm. Then you will look and be radiant. Your heart will throb and swell with joy. The wealth on the seas will be brought to you. To, To you, the riches of the nations will come. Herds of camels will cover your land. Young camels of Midian and Ephah, and all from Sheba will come, bearing gold and incense, proclaiming the praise of the Lord. To you, the riches of the nations will come. And then we look at Psalm 72. I'm not actually sure what verse it was, because I didn't, I didn't write it down, but Psalm 72 says this. The royal son, God's anointed, May the kings of Tarshish and of the distant, distant shores bring tribute to him. May the kings of Sheba and Seba present him gifts. May all kings bow down to him and all nations serve him. Perhaps that's, that's where the idea of these men, the Magi being kings, came from. That kings would come and bow down to him. We've got these wonderful prophecies that the rulers of the nations and the nations themselves will come before the king of the Jews and bring their tribute to him, bring their finest gifts to him, and present them to him in homage and worship. And then, of course, right at the end of the Bible, we've got a very similar picture in the book of Revelation. Revelation 21, verses 22 to 26. We've got the future city of God with the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus, reigning in the city, presiding over the city. And it says this in Revelation 21. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. That's Jesus. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is is the Lamb. By its light will the nations walk, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And its gates will never be shut by day, and there will be no more night there. They will bring bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. This idea of bringing gifts, the glory, the the prize goods and products of those nations and presenting them before the king. There was a reason why God led these magi, these wise men, to worship his son all the way from wherever they were. They were the pioneers. They were the first fruits. They were the vanguard, weren't they, of this great universal praising of the son of God. Not only does it point to the fact that the Gentiles will be included in God's plan. Remember Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel finishes with that great commission. You know, make disciples of every nation, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. But it starts, almost starts with this, the inclusion of the Gentiles coming in to worship Israel's Messiah. Israel, 
by and large, rejected him, but the Gentiles came. They knelt before him. They made peace with him. They paid homage to him. They worshipped him. And that's a picture of this great gathering of every tongue, tribe, and nation that will come and worship the Son of God. The wise men teach us how important it is to make our peace with the Lord Jesus, with the King of the Jews, the King of the whole world, while there's still time. While he was a baby, he didn't rule over anything. He, was, he, he had the glory and honor of the king, but he was still a baby. In this time we live in, the Lord Jesus, we don't see him as king. We still have a time to come and bow before him, make peace with him, to worship him, to get on the right side of him, to come to be on good terms with him. But one day when he will come back in glory, the word of God says this, Every knee will bow before him. Therefore God exalted him, the Lord Jesus, to the highest place and gave him the name which is above every name. That at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Now is the time, dear friends, when we're called to voluntarily worship the King, to come and seek him, to bow before him, to worship him, to make peace with him, to acknowledge him as our rightful King. Voluntarily. When he comes in glory, all will bow before him. Every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. They'll do what the wise men did. How important it is to make peace with him today, to worship him today, to, be, to, be, you know, to acknowledge him today as our true king, while, while he still gives us a chance to do so. So that... The Magi are a picture, as I said, of the Gentiles coming in, which includes many of us, and also believing Jews as well, gathered together as one one new man, Jew and Gentile alike, as the people of God united in Christ, the dividing walls being taken away. It's also a picture of that great universal gathering when everybody, every tongue will bow down and worship him one day. Let's make sure that we're worshiping, worshiping him today, gladly, voluntarily. And we're seeking him. We come before him. There's one, one more thing I didn't say as well. If you're a Christian here today, we, we must go through many hardships to enter the kingdom of God. Let me encourage you this. You will, one day you will see the Lord Jesus face to face. and You will worship him. You will adore him. And you will be... Your heart will be full of rapture as you see him. And say, this is my Lord, my King. Just like those magi traveling over many miles to see him, you will travel many miles in your Christian life. But keep on persevering until that day comes when you see him face to face. You will rejoice greatly on that day. That's the prize waiting for you, dear brother, dear sister. That's the prize for which we run, to see our Lord Jesus in his glory to worship him as we ought to, face to face. As I said, if you haven't done that yet, don't give yourself any rest at all until you know that's you, that you've come to him, that you worship him, you've received his forgiveness, you've put him in in his rightful place in your life, you put yourself in line with his purposes. Let's learn from the Magi, let's worship him together into this new year. Amen.